Welcome to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast with your host, Audrey McLaughlin. Hello, and welcome to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Audrey, and today we're on episode 34, and we're talking about navicular. This was a highly requested, highly, highly requested episode. So many of you in my nutrition course, so many of you uh, one-on-one clients, and even just, uh, you know, many of you that we hang out together on TikTok or are listeners of the podcast, which, by the way, is over 1,200 listens per episode. Ooh, um, have requested information about navicular. So let's talk about it. I could easily do an entire course, and I may, um, or, you know, a series of 10 podcasts on the subject. But I'm going to try to be brief today and deliver you the most valuable information that I can in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, it wasn't in too recent history and too long. It wasn't too long ago, I guess is a better way of saying it, that any horse with caudal hoof pain, was said to have navicular disease. (laughs) And we know now that there are many different structures in this area that can cause pain and many different root causes as well. It could be inflammation in the supporting ligaments of the navicular bone. It could be um, uh, impairment of suspensory ligaments of the navicular. It could be damage to collateral ligaments of the coffin joint even. It could be damage to the deep digital flexor tendon of the foot. It could be navicular bursitis. It could be coffin joint arthritis. Um, the, the cardinal sign, kind of the gold standard of really knowing whether or not a horse has navicular bone disease is that you have to use an MRI to assess increased fluid in the bone. Um, you know, <laughs> at first look, it is uh, still really unclear on what exactly that fluid is. Uh, if you're looking at conventional x-rays or radiographs, um, a hallmark uh, sign of navicular disease is the appearance of enlarged channels within the bone. Um, and, you know, they've a long time been assumed to be vascular channels, but um, we have research kind of going against that, that hypothesis at this point. Another name for navicular disease is podotrochlosis, P-O-D-O-T-R-O-C-H-L-O-S-I-S. And it's one of the, you know, really common causes of chronic forelimb lameness in horses, particularly athletic horses. Um, I know this is audio only, but the navicular bone is a really small bone located behind the pedal bone. Uh, And it acts as a pulley for the deep flexor tendon that wraps around to the pedal bone. Um, It is commonly said that navicular is a chronic degenerative condition that has four kind of parts or four pieces to it. One is, you know, specific loss of medullary architecture in the bone with uh, additional synovial um, fluid issues. Number two, sclerosis of the medullary architecture combined with the damage of the cartilage, um, actually impacting the flexor surface of the bone. Three, traumatic, um, deep digital flexor tendon issues because of the contact of the DDFT with the damaged surface of the navicular bone. Um, And so oftentimes that'll cause an adhesion between the tendon and the bone. And then kind of the fourth aspect is abnormal bony formations on the borders of the bone. Now, 
officially, officially, uh, the pathophysiology of navicular disease is officially unknown. <laughs> okay. So there, I said it. Um, veterinarians believe that it is a, um, complex side effect of a really specific disease process. Um, but kind of the greatest consensus is that, um, it is a primarily biomechanical issue that is causing that increased pressure. Um, and that, that kind of tertiary or, or, you know, the third option is that there may be a vascular component to it. Um, common veterinary medicine believes that it, that it is hereditarily predisposed, um, and that, uh, you know, the evidence that's commonly cited for this, that it, that it's a hereditary issue is because, um, in the, uh, breed of Dutch warmbloods, they started to mark stallions with severe navicular changes to not be allowed for breed, breeding. I almost said breathing. I think they're still allowed to breathe, just not breed with a D. Um, and they saw a reduction in new navicular cases. So they said, aha, it must be hereditary. Um, a lot of times they consider that it's, um, you know, a disease of a mature riding horse, because it usually doesn't appear to eight to 10 years of age. But keep that in mind, when we're talking eight to 10 years of age, we're talking Dutch warm bloods, all the things that if you've listened to other episodes, or if maybe you're in the nutrition course, or if we've talked one on one, then you might be noticing a pattern of the let's call them excuses for navicular disease. Um, You know, excessive pressure on the navicular bone um, occurs with the um, underrun heel and excessively long toe. So that creates a posture that leads to excessive concussion between the flexor tendon and the navicular bone. That certainly contributes to things that can contribute to that navicular bursitis or that direct damage of the cartilage of the surface, particularly where the flexor tendon goes um, of the navicular bone. So to sum all of that up, <laughs> vets believe that navicular is caused by one, mechanical stress, two, um, well, I'll, I'll say mechanical stress due to the constant pressure between the navicular bone and the DDFT, which leads to the de- degeneration of those two structures. And on the surface, I don't think that's wrong, perhaps. Um, they also believe that poor foot conformation, long toe, low heel, um, may also predispose horses to this uh, condition. And then that combined with a hereditary predisposition is what gets you. Because this condition is considered chronic and degenerative by most vets, a lot of holistic vets are seeing things differently now. Um, a vet will tell you it can be managed in some horses, but never cured. Uh, and the most common treatment that vets use, and it's not that it's ineffective, it just has other side effects, right? There's a consequence for using them, is um, NSAID administration. So Equiox, Prevacox, um, daily for the rest of their lives, and then, of course, corrective shoeing. So the conventional treatment methods are rest, right? Uh, trimming and shoeing to reduce the navicular bone tension, NSAIDs, right? Evo- uh, Equiox and Prevacox. Uh, steroids or joint injections into the coffin area, navicular bursa. Surgery. I can't even honestly say it without getting mad, but sometimes they'll do neurectomy where they sever the nerves that supply sensation to the foot and it provides about three to five years of pain relief. Please don't do that, um, but we'll get into that a little bit more. And then biologics. So, but what do we know, right? That's that's kind of all the Debbie Downer news. What do we know in the equine energy med community about chronic degenerative issues? What do we know about that? 
it's all fixable. <laughs> it's all fixable, okay? Um, now, can we necessarily take a horse that has had major, major bony changes, debilitating bony changes because they have had some of these conventional treatments and been continued in work? Not always. But if we have a new diagnosis of navicular or um, certain long-term diagnoses of navicular, we can fix it, right? What do we know about degenerative bone and joint issues? Commonly, they are related to sugar and insulin, metabolic dysregulation, and mineral imbalance. So when we have these problems, we destroy joints, right? When we have these problems combined with, and this is one part I think they have nailed on the head, when we have these problems combined with a long toe and a low heel, what are we doing? We're destroying joints and causing a lot of other problems too. When we combine those problems with conventional treatments, especially repeated use of some of these interventions like steroid injections and NSAIDs, we legitimately just melt the joint instead of helping the horse. We temporarily fix it. And I don't even want to use the word fix. We temporary, temporarily adjust it. So as we're putting these steroid injections in, we're just melting the joints and we're getting a lower return on investment each and every time. Surgery, I hope that you guys uh, can understand how a neurectomy, severing the nerves in the hoof, is not the answer um, because causing the horse to not be able to feel it and continue in their poor movement pattern, continue their poor diet, is only going to result in a horse that is dead lame in three to five years. And many people would argue, oh, well, that, you know, that's fine to take that time with a hobby horse. Well, I would argue back knowing some of my performance barns and some of my performance um, horse people that I work with, you know, these horses, these people have $10,000, $20,000 in a foal before it hits the ground. And so having the maximum use out of this horse without saying, okay, well, we've got three to five years, you know, let's really go hard and make some money on them versus, you know, having 10 to 12 years is, you know, that's a major difference in your return on investment, even if we're looking at, you know, something more than the hobby horse owner. So that begs the question, well, Audrey, if you have all the answers, what are they? And I'm not saying I have all the answers. And I want to preface this information that with saying that, you know, we're not diagnosing, treating or curing anything here. What we're doing is supporting our horse's natural ability to heal, supporting their evolutionarily correct diet, which eliminates horse problems. So it's funny, I was talking to a client just in the past week, and they mentioned, um, you know, we were talking primarily about their horses, but also about their mules and donkeys. And she said, reminded me of a quote that I had heard. um, She said, if you feed a mule like a horse, you'll have horse problems. I'm like, you're absolutely right. And I've heard that said a lot. But here's the thing, friends. If you feed a horse like a horse, meaning a forage diet, you won't have horse problems. Where we're getting into trouble is that we're feeding horses sugar and grains and all these things that they're not meant to have. It disrupts their gut metabolism. It disrupts their insulin resistance, their hormones. It disrupts their ability to utilize the minerals that they're taking in in their highly concentrated feed um, and put them to use in their body. And then we have all of these issues. Now, it is possible to do all right by a horse, do everything right as in what goes in. But if you overuse them, right, because horses aren't meant to carry humans, that's something they do out of the goodness of their heart, 
you know, at some point with too much work or the wrong kind of work or biomechanically unsound work, then you can cause problems like this without any of the other factors at play. Most often it does not occur in a vacuum. So back to what we should do about it. So one of the most beneficial things that you can do for your horse is a forage diet. And I just talked about that a little bit. So what is a forage diet? It is doesn't come in a concentrated feed package. If you look at your feed package and it's got more than one, maybe two ingredients, and it depends on what those two ingredients are, get rid of it. Wean them off of it. They need to be, horses thrive on forage. That's what they're meant evolutionarily to eat. And when you get them off of all of this fake food, they thrive. You will begin to see the full athletic ability, the full mental capability of your horse, including horses that have issues like navicular. Now, recently I had someone on TikTok that owns a feed store uh, argue that you can't call it feeding a forage diet if you're feeding them minerals and flax on top. And I disagree. Flax and minerals are used to combat the um, issues that we have with common hay production speaking as a hay producer myself, but common hay production and lack of um, evolutionary correct forage. So we do the best we can by providing them as close to as we can those ingredients. So forage consists of grass hay or pelleted grass hay, but it could be orchard, teff, uh, alfalfa, although you don't want to go all alfalfa, uh, coastal Bermuda, all brome, all kinds of different uh, grasses are appropriate depending on the horse and the breed and the job. Uh, and then you can supplement with a nice mineral that doesn't have any of those other inflammatory ingredients. So don't look at the guaranteed analysis, look at the ingredients list on your mineral, make sure it doesn't have any rice or oat or distiller's grain, or rice bran oil or soy or soybean oil or any of those ingredients, in order to ensure that you're giving them the good stuff, right? Add a little bit of salt. That is the first step, right? It's a multi pronged approach to heal this kind of thing. The second step, we want to get them some pain relief. So one of my favorite things for pain relief is red light therapy, also known as photobiomodulation. Now, in order for it to be effective, it has to be delivered frequently. So not that I don't love body workers, and I do a fair amount of body work myself, but the important part of body work is to empower the horse owner to be able to do this, the homework in between. So for red light therapy in particular, in order to really affect long lasting change, it needs to be done daily or two to three times a week. Now there are big show barns and performance barns that will have me out there every single day if I can, or three times in a week if I can. But for the average horse owner, it's cost prohibitive. So you want to get yourself a red light. If you want recommendations on that, um, then just let me know. But get yourself a red light and learn to do some of this yourself. Um, I'm putting together a red light for horse owners little class, just like my little ulcer class and all that stuff. And I will show you guys what light to buy, how to do it, um, what the time distance, because it's important how far away you are from it, type of light you need to use, and what basically what the protocols are to treat that. But we know that red light and the unique properties, um, they assist in reducing not only pain, right? Pain without the use of NSAIDs 
Um, but they're also reparative to the joint surface. When you combine that with exercise and movement, which is one of the things, you know, often um, people say, oh, my horse has an avicular, they're in a stall. It's one of the worst things you can do for a horse with arthritis is put them somewhere where they can't move. Um, so with the combination of red light and movement, there are, uh, there uh, is studies show there's a higher level of healing and pain relief compared to NSAID use, compared to exercise alone, compared to a lot of other modalities. Um, You need a light that has near infrared light and red light um, in order to reach the depth um, that you need to, to penetrate deep into the joint. Okay. So that is Option number two, or, uh, you know, kind of step number two. So by reducing the inflammation, normalizing blood circulation to the area, good things happen. In this case, less pain in the joint and enhanced healing in the bone. So we could dive deep into the literature. I don't necessarily want to bore you guys with it, but the results um, of the literature showed that near-infrared light-assisted phototherapy, which is what we're talking about here, um, had... So looking at the kind of a literature search, or you could call it a meta-analysis, but it wasn't an official meta-analysis, but it showed that results of looking at a search through red light photobiomodulation studies indicate that when you use red light and near-infrared light on bone, you increase osteoblastic proliferation, collagen deposition, bone reformation, okay? Those three things are really, really important. So it's really worthwhile for a horse with navicular. Another option for comfort of a navicular horse is PEMF. Uh, PEMF is a really great therapy. However, it tends to be cost prohibitive for people to um, start on their own, but it increases the oxygenation of the blood, increases circulation to the foot, and helps to reduce pain and aid in healing because of the increased circulation in the foot. I also like to use the ting points around the hoof, um, particularly ting point LI1 or large intestine one. You can massage it in a circular motion. You can use your red light on it. Um, or I have a uh, ting spray that I like to use that you can drop on the surface or spray on the bottom of the foot as well. So utilizing all of these therapies along with a good biomechanical evaluation and Excellent farrier, guys. I can't tell you how important a really good barefoot farrier is. And not just, you know, the best farrier in town or the best shoer, that's a dangerous one, in town. I'm talking about somebody who specializes in these difficult cases. I have the best therapeutic farrier. Uh, He is local to North Texas, but he does travel. So if you need the best therapeutic farrier's information, reach out, let me know, use the contact form on the website, and I will put you in touch. There is nothing this guy can't figure out. And he is the most education seeking and puzzle solving farrier I have ever, ever met. Uh, He is a natural barefoot farrier and shoes are a last resort for him. Um, Just to give you a a little bit of history, I have a 13-year-old quarter horse. Um, He is uh, by Colonel Freckles. Um, He's an amazing dude, but we got him a year ago and he was in bad shape. He had been dumped off at an auction. Uh, Couldn't figure out why. Great pedigree, looked good until we got him home and got him moving. Uh, And then we figured out that navicular was an issue. He was overweight at the time, had fat pads, 
um, which is unusual for a horse. So we got all of that worked out with all natural methods. And then um, during that process, we began the work of transitioning him to forage and fixing, if you will, his navicular. It started with diet, farrier work, red light therapy. Diet, farrier work, red light therapy. My farrier, we went from uh, trimming to poly shoes and then worked our way back out of the poly shoes because once you put them in a shoe, you have to kind of transition them out of it very slowly. Um, and now he is all barefoot. Uh, it's funny when my farrier needs pics, he'll come out and take pictures of my guy's feet <laughs> to um, use as examples. Um, because, and I always joke, I'm like, oh, you started out with the worst feet in the world and pictures for another reason. And now you get your glamour shots, your, your case study worthy photos. Um, but just to know that it is a, you know, it's a total picture. So hopefully that gives you some insight into the common conventional methods versus how we would attack that from a naturopathic or holistic standpoint. Um, and hopefully I've at least stimulated some good thought processes in your brain so that we can um, push forward and help your horse have as much longevity longevity and usefulness for you out of it so you can continue your mounted um, uh, relationship. As always, thanks for listening. And I will be back again very soon with a Q&A edition. I've had some really great questions submitted to me. Um, if you're not on my list already, head over to the website, download the um, guide to uh starting your horse's self-healing abilities. And um, that way you'll be notified when the red light class comes out and then when the nutrition course restarts. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated. We'll catch you in the next episode.